Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Pete, I'm doing outstanding. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, or the institutions of our guests. Okay, today, so we have a special episode for you. We've invited Dr. Xavier Duralde on the podcast. Dr. Duralde is just completing his presidency of the American Shoulder Devil Surgeon Society. Dr. Duralde is well known to many members of our society and many of our listeners. For those of us who don't know him, he completed his training at Columbia before entering the Air Force. And then he went on to Petrie Orthopedics in Atlanta, where he's been for many years, serving for many years as the team physician for the Atlanta Braves. Dr. Duralde, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Dr. Raleigh, tell us, how did you first become interested in shoulder surgery? You know, you know it's funny when um, I think in everybody's career early on, you know, you're, you're interested in medicine, you're interested in science, and then it, you start to focus as, as time goes on. And, uh, you know, you, you hear people say things happen by chance. And, uh, and so I, you know, was at Columbia for medical school and really enjoyed it. I thought it was a great place. And then I stayed there for uh, orthopedic training. And, uh, and I came, I, I uh, worked under Dr. Charles Neer, who was really the premier shoulder surgeon in the world at that time. And, you know, we would see people come from all over the world to train under him. And I realized the incredible opportunity I had at that point <clears throat> to do something like shoulder and that it was really a unique opportunity for me. And, and so when I was trying to decide whether that made sense or not, you know, one of the things that, uh, some of the things I thought about was, well, how challenging is it? And, and how much room is there for advancement and for research and that sort of thing in the field? And I realized that most people around the country felt like the shoulder was sort of a black box. It was a difficult joint to understand. It was a difficult joint to operate on because of all the adjacent neurovascular structures. And, and so that if I were to <clears throat> learn how to take care of shoulders and focus my practice on that, that most likely people would be very happy to refer those patients to me because they were so complicated. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the old story of early on, it's about your interests. And then later on, as you get further in your career, it's about your mentors. And so really, Dr. Dr. Neer was the, the person that sparked that interest in me. And you haven't looked back since. Tell, no. us, um, tell us a little bit about your time in the military. Tell us about that experience, how it shaped your practice, your approach to patients. Um, we see a lot of surgeons, especially shoulder and sports surgeons who have military background, and I'm sure many of them are listening to this right here, right now. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, I decided early on that I wanted to spend some time in the military at some point in my career. Um, even when I was in college, I said, you know, I really wanted to find a way to make that work. And then the, you know, the health profession scholarship program was just perfect. When I found out about that, I said, I'm definitely doing it because I thought it'd be a very interesting way to, to start my career and, and, you know, didn't know how long I would want to stay in and what the opportunities would be. Um, so, you know, it was it was sort of bittersweet in some ways because, you know, I wanted to do the fellowship in shoulders with Dr. Neer as soon as I finished my residency. And uh, but I was deferred by the Air Force uh, through my, the end of my residency. So I applied for one more year of deferral before going into active duty to be able to do the shoulder fellowship. And the Air Force said, no, they needed people now. And, you know, things were starting to heat up in Europe. I mean, the Cold War was still going strong. This was 1988. And, uh, you know, we had just been bombing Gaddafi and things were heating up in the Middle East. And so uh, the military wanted everybody coming in. And so uh, so I, I, I turned down the fellowship and I came in and I, I really wanted to go overseas and so I spoke to the you know, people who made the assignments. And uh, basically, <clears throat> when you're coming out of residency, you pick last in terms of your position. But there's a period of time in which everyone, the, the overseas assignments are being made. And uh, everyone who's volunteered and wants to volunteer has already done so. And there's some spots over left over in, in overseas that nobody wants. And so I, I told the 
person making assignments, call me when that time comes up and I'll volunteer for one of them. So you'll have, you know, one less person that you have to assign that doesn't want to go there. And so, uh, so I wound up taking the spot in England, in Oxford, England. It was a NATO base and it was uh, very interesting. We were F-111s, fighter bombers and electronic jammer planes. And when we got over there, you would have thought that World War II ended 10 years before. I mean, it was unbelievable. We were in the field once a month in full chem gear, and we were ready for the Russians to come over the wall any time. And the interesting thing was that was in the days of Reagan, and Reagan had the Russians so scared that they thought we were going to attack them any minute. So they were on full alert. We were on full alert, and it was sort of crazy. Um, and it stayed that way for the first couple of years until the Berlin Wall went down and, and you, the Soviet Union started to fall apart. We thought, oh, good, now we can kind of cruise. And then <clears throat> all of a sudden, um, uh, you know, Kuwait gets invaded by Iraq. And so, you know, Saddam Hussein suddenly gets rid of all of our, you know, uh, downtime. And so, so suddenly we went on alert again for Desert Storm, prepared for the war, opened up all the contingency hospitals. And... Um, you know, that was, it was a pretty interesting uh, learning experience in terms of all that. You know, the, the practice itself overseas, the practice is a sports medicine practice because, um, you know, retirees aren't over there. So you're not dealing with that population. Anybody who has any significant medical problems is not allowed to go over. And so, you know, you're seeing guys that are running around out in the field doing things and tearing their ACLs and hurting their shoulders and fracturing their ankles. And so it's it's a um, sports medicine practice. And uh, so I learned a lot doing that. Um, I was the only person, only orthopedic surgeon at my base. So I came straight out of residency training, you know, no fellowship. You sort of feel like you don't know anything and you're sort of thrown into the fire. And so like anybody, those first two years were a real, uh, you know, steep learning curve. But, um, you know, it gave me a lot of confidence and it also allowed me to learn what I didn't know. And so I'd be doing struggling through these shoulder operations and, and having trouble and trying to figure out what I was doing wrong. So actually when I went back to do my fellowship, I was a much keener observer. And, and when we got to those critical steps, steps where I was struggling, I would, it was like, you know, the light bulb would go off like, Oh, that's how you do it. You know? So, so I think it was a much better learning experience when I got back. Um, I mean, the other aspect about the military is all the leadership, you know, so um, everybody in the military is young. So you take leadership positions earlier in your career, career than you would normally in a civilian practice. And so, you know, I got over there and they said, oh, you're the chief of orthopedics, you know, and I said, yeah, chief and Indian because I was the only guy there. Uh, but within two years, they made me chief of surgery. And so I had seven, you know, other surgeons under my command, you know, the general surgery, OBGYN, those sort of types. And then uh, and then I also shortly after that became the assistant chief of hospital services, which we would nickname uh, holiday commander, because uh, when the holidays came up, the, the the hospital commander and the chief hospital service would go, both go on vacation and you were left stuck there at the hospital. But uh, it was great to learn how to run a hospital and how to run, um, you know, the staff. So I think I learned a lot in leadership um, when I was in the military for that, that that's really helped me since I got out. So I just want to make sure, so you, I understand. So you, you did a Columbia residency, then you went to the military, and then after your experience, you went back to become a Columbia fellow. Yes. Yeah, and so, so, then, so that's kind of, so in terms of your education, it's probably ideal because you know you you're out there operating on your own for four years and you really know you, you figure out what you don't know and then when you go back to fellowship you you learn so much better because you're not worried about having the knife in your hands because you've been operating for independently for four years and and so there was a fantastic year for learning i mean it was just and, and i was much more mature you know obviously too i was already a member of the academy i was board certified um, and it made it a lot easier to kind of, you know, move around the operating room and I could focus on the things I didn't know, you know, the reason I was there. And so, um, and, you know, then leading, you know, directing residents and things like that was a lot easier because I've been doing it for so been, you know, leadership positions for so long. Financially, it was a nightmare because, um, I had four children by that point. 
And uh, and so I came back to the, you know, and Columbia is not in a good neighborhood. I mean, it's better now than it used to be, but you know, it's, it's uh, the uh, northern part of Harlem. And so so I you know, decided I was going to rent a house in New Jersey for my for my family to live in while I was a fellow. And the, my rent was my entire salary. And so I had to call my brother and say, hey, would you lend me some money to make it through this year? And he's kind enough to do that, you know, and I pay him back the next year. But um, yeah, so it was uh, what my wife and I called our, our year of austerity. But it was definitely worth it. You know, we kept saying, you know, think ahead, look forward, you know, focus on the future. Because I knew at that point that the skills that I was going to get that year as a shoulder fellow were going to, you know, pay back uh, uh, in in multiples. Because, you know, I wound up going coming down to Atlanta. And when I came down to interview here in 1992 for a job, People in Atlanta did not know what the, uh, a shoulder specialist was. There was no one here who was a shoulder specialist. They had a couple of sport guys that liked shoulder, a couple of hand guys that liked shoulder, um, but nobody's doing complex shoulders. And even the university, when I interviewed with them, they said to me, well, you can either be a, uh, an arthroplasty surgeon or a sports medicine surgeon. Those are the only two divisions we have here. We don't have shoulders. And so uh, I realized that there's a lot of opportunity because that kind of mentality and that kind of level of training leads to a lot of undertreatment in a community. And when I got here, uh, you know, I saw patients who other doctors had given up on and they were literally routine cases that we would do three to four times a week at Columbia. Uh, And so uh, it was fertile ground to develop a shoulder practice and, you know, a couple of years later, the university called me back and said, can our residents rotate with you? And uh, because they realized they didn't, they didn't, they needed that. And, you know, subsequently they brought in shoulder, they offered me the job and they did not want to go to the university at that point. They brought in shoulder people. So now they've developed that. But, you know, 30 years ago, uh, nobody in Atlanta really, you know, knew what that was. So it was, um, it was sort of uh, trailblazing. Now, when you were back at Columbia at a um, at a really storied time, it sounds like Nier was there, Bigliani was there. I'm sure it was. Were you there? Well, well, Flada was also still there. Yes. So um, my relationship with Flada was interesting because he was my senior resident. He was two years ahead of me uh, in residency uh... program. And so the Columbia, this was the old fashioned program. It was two years of general surgery and three years of orthopedics. And so when you came in as a third year resident, you were on the bottom of the rung of orthopedics. And then the fifth year guys uh, ran the services. And then two out of the people, two people in that year were selected as chief residents. And so uh, Dr. Flato was one of those two people. And so when you're chief resident, you make the schedule and you schedule every single person on the, uh, in the program every day. And so you have, you have a lot of control. And so he was the person that controlled all of us when I was a junior resident, you know? And so, um, so of course you grow to hate people like that, but, um, you know, <laughs> but, but he was a good guy, you know, he, you know, uh, you know, he's, he, he was very particular as he is now. Um, and so you feared him, you know, when you saw him come down the hall, he'd reach to his pocket to see where you were supposed to be at that moment, you know? But, um, so then I left for four years and I came back and then now he was a professor. You know, so then he was my professor when I went back for the fellowship. Dr. Bilani was in charge, and then Dr. Flato was uh, was the you know his assistant, and um, and those two guys were great. I mean, Dr. Near is a very interesting person. I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories about him. He was not a man of many words. Uh, you would ask him a question, and he'd kind of turn and walk away, and you weren't quite sure if you heard your question or not. And then the next day he'd come up to you and he'd basically recite chapter four out of his book in answering your question. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, and so, and, and with Dr. Near, you had to be comfortable with silence because you get a long period of time where nobody would say anything. You just have to wait for him to say the next thing. And then Dr. Bidani and Flato were, um, were very different from each other and from Dr. Near. So Dr. Bidani had a million things going on at, uh, at any time. And so we used to joke when you're a fellow that you could only ask Dr. Bigliani one question each day. And so you had to really 
pick your question very carefully, you know, because that was it, because he didn't have time for a second question. And so you're working on a research project. You wanted to know what critical piece of information you needed from him to help you move that, that research project forward, you know, and, and if you asked him some other question, that was it. You blew it away another day. And so uh, the other thing about Dr. Biliani was that he was a masterful surgeon and you'd watch him operate and he'd do things in, during surgery and you'd say, uh, Louie, why did you do that? And he'd go, uh, you know, uh, she needed it, you know, and then he'd have a hard time explaining. It was always the right thing to do, but he had a hard time explaining why he'd done that. And, uh, and, and so Evan was the opposite, you know, so you would say, you know, you'd be in operating with him and you go, uh, Evan, why'd you do that? He turned to the scrub nurse and go marking pen. And then next thing you know, there'd all be all these physics calculations and formulas written on the drapes and, you know, explaining, you know, all the minute detail of why he did a certain thing. And the nurses hated it because, you know, delayed surgery, but, you know, <laughs> They were sort of the yin and yang of each other because, uh, you know, one had was, you know, they're both brilliant, but but one explained ad nauseum and the other one had trouble explaining it all at all. Do you have any other stories about Nier? We haven't had a lot of people tell near stories about Nier. Um, and he's obviously such an important person in our field. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a million stories about Dr. Nier. Um, you know, he was he was a. Um, it's very interesting, you know, he um, he was at Columbia in the 40s and his career was interrupted by World War II and he was uh, active duty in the Army. And then he came back and he was um, he was uh, really interested in um, trauma. And so and so his whole development of the prosthesis came about for four part proximal humerus fractures that had terrible results. You know, they didn't have a good solution for him. And that's how he designed the prosthesis. And the original prosthesis, you know, had a tri triangular stem, had a, an unusual shaped head to accommodate the rotator cuff, and he had no glenoid. And one of the reasons he had no glenoid is because uh, he didn't know about uh, methylmethacrylate. And so, you know, as, as time passed, he sort of realized he could start using this prosthesis for arthritis. And then he realized he needed to come up with a glenoid. And uh, and then another professor, uh, who's one of the Charnley's first fellows, uh, came to Columbia, Nas Eftekar. And uh, and the story goes that he taught Nier how to use methylmethacrylate. And that really helped sort of the development of the, of the glenoid and that sort of thing. So, but Nier was extremely thoughtful, very quiet person. Um, and uh, he kind of looked right through you. I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was, it, it, was, it, it was very intimidating, you know. So when we would present uh, in Grand Rounds, it, we, the, the theater we had was the old time theaters you see like in the old paintings, you know, where it was very steep uh, and you're down in the pit and everybody's looking at you. Well, Dr. Nero was sitting in the front row and he would stare at you. And if you said anything that you couldn't back up, you knew you were dead. I mean, because he would call you on it. And so you really had to be prepared uh, when you presented to him because you knew that, you know, there was no BS. And, and I think, uh, you know, that really kind of helped you prepare for surgery and for patient care because you knew you really had to know what you were doing before you could make recommendations. Um, you know, I, if, he, he, if he didn't like somebody, that was it. You know, they were, they were toast, you know, so um you know if, if you ever asked to say well i can't make it to, to surgery because i have something else to do you know you were in trouble because he would kind of write you off but for some reason he always liked me i always liked him we got along great and um you know so so i always had a very very good experience with him he was my third year preceptor in um in uh in in medical school and so it's kind of a funny story I was, uh, so I, I, I was rotated on orthopedics and at that point I was still thinking about general surgery and he asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, I think I want to be a general surgeon. And he said, okay. And so then later on, you know, I had this conversation with my father who said, don't go into general surgery. He was a general surgeon. And so he said, you really need to re rethink orthopedics because I, th I think that's a good field for you. And so, uh, I, so, I took, so I signed up for a sub-internship in orthopedics, and, and I really thought about it more. And I thought, you know, my dad's right. I should go into orthopedics. Really, it's an interesting field. And, um, 
And so then I called Dr. Near's office and I said, uh, you know, I, I was, I was going to apply. So it's going to apply for orthopedics. And the Columbia tradition is that you ask your third year preceptor to write a letter for you. And so, so then I, so I asked, I asked another attending and said, well, you have to ask your third year preceptor. That's the policy at Columbia. And so, so I called Dr. Near's office and he said, yeah, I'd be happy to write you a letter. So he wrote me a letter. And at this point I had no idea who Dr. Near was. You know, all, all I knew was he was my preceptor in third year and he's a shoulder guy. And so, so then I start going for my interviews for orthopedic residency and it soon becomes uh, apparent that Dr. Near is somebody very important. And so the people tell me, you know, Dr. Near? And I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and they go, well, what's he like? And they're asking all these questions about Dr. Near. And I'm like, oh my God. So, you know, you don't really get to look at your letters. And so when I, when I uh, interviewed at George Washington, they had a thing where you had like eight interviews and you, you would uh, carry your portfolio uh, between rooms. And so when one room, there was a delay. So I opened mine and I read Dr. Near's letter. And he wrote me this fantastic letter of recommendation, which I still can't get over. I mean, like, you know, because I mean, literally, it's a two week rotation. And, you know, um, I guess, you know, I, I made a good impression on him because he wrote me this incredible letter. And, and it, the last sentence of the letter was, I would like to see him in our residency program. And so when I went to interview at Columbia, they told me, look, Dr. Near wants you. You're in already. <laughs> and uh, and that was it. So. It was, it, it was, you know, very powerful person, very, um, you know, carried a lot of weight and certainly, you know, launched me on my career. It's honestly incredible. I mean, these stories, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, what would it be like, you know, if, if we, if Pete and I were med students at that time, or what would it be like if Dr. Near was practicing now and there were med students just with the culture of medicine and medical education today? Um, and your experiences are just incredibly fascinating, and I, I feel like we could go on for hours about different stories. But um, for the sake of the podcast, we should ask some additional questions about you and your career. Um, so I, I know, you know, as a sports surgeon, I'm incredibly passionate about team coverage, and you've had an amazing experience as a Major League Baseball team physician which is not the standard for shoulder surgeons. While shoulder surgeons, of course, are intimately involved in, in team care for all different types of athletes and sport teams, um, oftentimes it's more of a traditional sports trained surgeon who takes on that role. So tell us a little bit about that. And, uh, you know, for our shoulder and elbow listeners, how might they uh, be able to get involved in, in such opportunities like this? So I was very fortunate. You know, I joined Peach Orthopedics and, and our uh one of our uh, sports medicine doctors was a team physician for the Braves and, and the, our, our practice had taken care of the Braves for many years. And so, uh, you know, I had done an adult reconstructive uh, shoulder fellowship. And so I felt very confident with arthroplasty, revision surgery, rotator cuffs, fractures, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I had sort of a passing knowledge of sports and, you know, of, of sports injuries. And so, uh, so I was, ill-prepared to take care of the Braves. And so, so I was, I was interested and, and, and I always liked to teach. And so from the moment I got to Atlanta, I started teaching everywhere I could. I, you know, I became adjunct um, uh, faculty at Emory and I would give grand rounds a couple of times and I would speak at our, you know, regional conferences and our state conferences, things like that. And so, and I, and, and I always really felt strongly about the power of education. And so, yeah, uh, and so I convinced my partner um, to run a course on a youth safety in baseball, and this was like 1996 or so. And Dr. Andrews at that time was already pushing this as a big topic, and you know the the you know explosion of UCL tears and all that sort of stuff was already happening. And so I convinced uh, our two main hospitals in Atlanta to sponsor this and the Braves to run it. And then uh, we got, uh, we invited all the little league coaches in the area. And then we had like a couple of the pitchers, John Smoltz and one of our relievers. And we had our scouts. We had um, you know, the different personnel talking about what they look for and that sort of thing. And then, you know, uh, and then tried to emphasize, you know, safety. And, and so it was a very well-received course. I mean, the Braves liked it because it's community service and it's all about, uh you know, health and welfare and that sort of thing. And the hospital loved it because of the advertising and stuff. And the literally coaches loved it because they got to see all the brave stuff. 
So it was really very successful. So a year later, or you know, about a year later, there was an opening in the Braves. One of the one of the uh, positions retired, and so out of the blue, they called me and said, "Would you like to join our staff?" And so I had never thought about being a sports medicine doctor. You know, I really thought I was just going to do adult reconstructive. But an opportunity like that, you didn't want to pass up. And so, um, so I said, "Yes, I'd love to." And so. I got there and I was absolutely clueless on how to take care of these players. I mean, they, they'd come, they'd complain about something. I had no idea what it was, why they had it, how significant it was, how long it was going to take them to get better. And it was just, it was, you know, a nightmare. I needed a lot of hand holding. You know, I think that's all the kind of stuff you learn in fellowship or if you hadn't had a fellowship on the job training, it's very difficult. And so fortunately my partner who was, it was Joe Chandler, who was the, uh, who was the uh, team physician was very helpful kind of guided me through a lot of stuff and I read as much as I could and, you know, just studied the players and that sort of thing. And, and, it, and it, it, it literally took me about 10 years before I really felt confident with it. But, you know, each year I felt better about it. And I, and I, you know, I started giving talks on it and I realized how I didn't know anything about it and sort of refined those, my understanding of it over many years. But I remember one story when, um, it was after a game and I'm sitting in the training room with one of the uh, relief pitchers and I'm sitting there and, and the head trainer's there and the general manager is there and Bobby Cox is there. And so I'm examining the player and they're looking at me and they go, well, and so, so I start pontificating on, well, I think he's got this. I think we've got to do that and da, 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 and we'll try this and blah, blah, blah. And they're all looking at me. I mean, literally, they're looking at me like uh, like bird dogs looking at a down duck or something, you know. And 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 there's just there's silence. They're just looking at me, and I'm like, and I'm going, I'm looking at them like I'm not saying something that they want to hear, you know. And finally, the trainer says to me, "Well, can he play?" And I said, "Oh yeah, he can play." And they go, "Oh!" And then everybody stood up and walked out of the room. And that's all they want to know whether he can play or not. Everything else they could care less about. And it was just sort of that understanding, that mentality of um, of the players and of the coaches and the fact that, you know, this is a business and, you know, they have to field the team. So it was it was fascinating. I loved it because I learned so much about, you know, the pathophysiology of throwing and and of, uh, you know, how these injuries occur and how you treat them and how they're important and things like that. So I love my experience with the Braves. I mean, it's obviously very time consuming uh, and hard work because there's such a long season, so many games involved. But um, it really opened a lot of doors for me, too, because, you know, once you sort of start learning about it, start teaching about it, everybody wants to learn. You know, how do you take care of these players? And it's, it's, they, they place such unique stresses on their bodies that uh, unless you really take care of baseball players, you don't understand the significance of some injuries and the same with the, the physical therapists and trainers, unless you have a physical therapist who deals with baseball players, I'm sure it's true of a lot of sports. They don't understand the significance of certain injuries and uh, don't know how to deal with it exactly. You know, so, um, so I, it was wonderful. It was really uh, very fortunate. Of course, the vagaries of sport, you know, they brought in a new management team because the team wasn't doing well and they fired everybody and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, you know, sort of an ignominious ending to the whole thing. But, um, you know, it, you know, they say that it, 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 after about 10 years, you're trying to look for a way to get out of it anyway, because it's so much work and you're not getting that much out of it anymore. But uh, I, did it for, <clears throat> I did it for 19 years and I was the head team physician for the last nine years of it. So it was a, it was a really, really, really good experience. I think it helped my career a lot, helped my understanding of the shoulder a lot. And, um, yeah, I think if, if you have an opportunity to deal with a team like that, it's just such a interesting thing to do just for the learning aspects of it that it really is great. Certainly I've you know, I take care of some baseball players in my practice, not not as many as you do, but it's it's a they're a very challenging patient population. They're it's and I, I totally agree with you that I think that you you can understand the shoulder and not as long if you don't understand that sport, it makes it challenging. I mean, certainly, for instance, your paper on posterior labor repairs in throwers, I think is a real landmark paper. You know, I've, I've, bef I've heard people say, oh, you know, you should treat all those injuries non-operatively. And I often point to that paper to say, you know, you, you can be successful if there's a structural pathology. And I know other surgeons have been swayed towards operative treatment. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's interesting. The, um, it, it's sort of scary, you know, because you're taking care of these patients and you don't have a lot of options. And, um, 
and you see this pathology and you don't have a lot of guidance in terms of how to proceed with it. And you have to sort of go with your gut. And, um, you know, you start to learn things like, um, like when patients say that, you know, my pain, shoulder pain comes on after ball release, you know, that's like a, that's like a, like a alarm signal that that's posterior labrum, you know? So usually it's like if they have pain with late cocking, early acceleration, you're thinking cuff, but if they say pain after ball release, you know, you have to ask them because they say it hurts when I throw. And then you have to say, well, when, is, when do you feel it? Right. When you let go of the ball and they go, yeah, that's posterior labrum, you know? So, um, so, so you get in there and you think, okay, what should I do here? And, and so obviously, you know, the major leaguers, you really worry because you can't experiment, but with the minor leaguers, you know, you figure that you got to do something to help this guy maintain his career. And so we just developed the philosophy that we say, look, we're going to fix whatever's torn. And, and if we see a Frank tear, we're going to fix it and we'll fix that area. And we'll try not to, you know, Jimmy Andrews always said, do the least amount you can in that shoulder. And so, and I think that's a good philosophy with these throwers. And so we, we started to do it and uh, started getting some good success out of it and, and kept doing it. And then just, you know, then looked up our results and, you know, obviously that was a much smaller, small group out of a much larger group in which, which we were doing that surgery. Uh, you know, part of it too is figuring out how to operate on the posterior labrum because, you know, years ago, we all felt very comfortable doing a bank cart repair, but nobody felt really comfortable. Like, how do you get that anchor back there at that seven o'clock position posteriorly, you know? And and so I came up with the idea was of just turning my body around. And if I was doing a left shoulder, I'd mentally tell myself I'm doing a bank cart on a right shoulder when I'd really be doing a posterior labrum on a left shoulder. And then turn the screen around so it's behind the patient. And so you, you're you're looking this right direction and you just kind of mentally told yourself you were, you know, doing the same thing as the bank art repair, just on the opposite side of the shoulder. And so that trick worked, you know, you kind of played around with with portal to figure out how do you how do you get there safely, you know. And I, I think some of this you have to follow your gut. I was always worried about, you know, that lower portal that go across the axillary nerve. And so we used the high portal and it worked fine. Uh, you know, we started out trying to use the, the, uh, Wilmington portal, um, you know, and, and it, I didn't find that that satisfactory. So, but it was kind of just moved it a little bit and it worked out fine for the posterior labrum. And so <clears throat> the whole thing is an evolution, you know, and I think in your practice, what you need to do is identify the things that you don't understand or aren't working for you. And even if you can't, figure them out right away, keep them in the back of your mind, because at some point something's going to happen where it's going to trigger in you like, oh, I bet, you know, I bet this is true, or I bet I can do this, or I could do that instead of what I'm doing right now. And, and, and so, you know, it kind of evolves and, and you've got to look your, your, you know, your results up because you got to make sure that it's working because often you, you don't get a good gestalt unless you do that. And so that was a very satisfying study we did. Um, on the, on the posterior labrum because the results were so good in that, in that patient group and kind of the, um, the, uh, the, the rubber hit the road with uh, Brian McCann, who was you know, our catcher, his all-star catcher. And, uh, and he batted left-handed and threw right-handed and they tore his labrum halfway through that year. And, you know, and so uh, halfway through a year and, and from like July on, he's miserable the rest of the season. He couldn't bat because when he swung, he had pain, but he could throw fine. And so then we worked him up and he had a posterior labral tear. And, uh, and then, uh, and then, so he's trying to figure out what to do about it. And so I, I searched the literature. There's only that one paper that Steve Burkhart was on that, I can't remember who the lead was on it, but they had 12 patients. And I think there were five different authors that came up with the 12 patients, but they had good results. Uh, I think Josh Dines was on that as well. He might've been the lead. And, uh, and so I, I said that I said to Brian, I go, look, the results seem to be good with this type of problem. I think we should t- try and operate because we tried to rehab him for, you know, three or four months and he was doing horribly. And it was, it was coming into a contract year the next year. And so, uh, so he went and got an opinion from Jimmy Andrews, got an opinion from Neil Elitrash. And then we actually all met at one of the academy meetings and talked about him. And Jimmy joked, he said, he goes, you know, right now he can throw, but he can't hit. If you fix him, he might be able to hit and he won't be able to throw. And so, you know, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. 
And so, um, you know, the agents typically dictate who's going to do the surgery in the end, but I had a good relationship with Brian. And so he let me do the surgery. And at that point I had enough confidence, you know, that we'd done it on other people that, it, that it would work. And he did fantastically well, you know, and he went on had a great year the next year and then signed a $84 million contract with the Yankees after that. And just, you know, finished his career with the Astros and won a world series. And he's moved back to Atlanta and he's a great guy. Uh, but that's like one of those high profile, like, you know, uh, you're either going to do, you're either going to shine or you're going to go down in flames. Um, and that's the thing about these pro sports guys, you know, it's, it's high profile, so high risk, high reward. But, um, but it was kind of an evolution learning, you know, the whole, the whole process of learning how to take care of these and not knowing. So the road's not not there in front of you you have to create the road and i think it's that happens in a lot of people's careers and um in ev all areas not just sports and i think you just have to constantly be looking for what makes sense and then evaluate to make sure that what you're doing actually is working well, it's a wonderful story i mean it's certainly i'm sure looking back a, a fun a fun memory of a time you took a chance and it really worked Another one of your papers that I often cite in conversation is your partial repair study. And what I think is interesting about the study is you can, you know, you have pretty good results. And when you use it as a comparison to many of the procedures that have been invented since your paper, and I think the paper was published in 2006. So since then, we've got superior capsular reconstruction, lower PCS transfer. I mean, these things were not, they didn't even exist then. And I think, you know, now that we have all these new shiny toys, we've kind of forgotten about the partial repair because everything that's new and shiny is exciting. So, I mean, you've seen trends come and go in massive cuff tears. You know, I'm sure you look back on that paper and even the paper you write, you know, this should be used as a comparison for new new procedures or tenant transfers or augmentation. I mean, what, tell us your perspective on, on that procedure, you know, kind of from the vantage point we have now. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we all know that there are people out there with asymptomatic rotator cuff tears, and it's all about having a balanced repair, you know, and this is... Um, you know, Steve Burkhart was the person that really figured all this out and talked about the suspension bridge model. And he wrote that first paper on that, um, on the, and again, they had very few patients in that. And I had this resident at Emory who was bugging me for a research project, you know, and I was pretty young in my career still. And, and so I said, I said, I said, all right, well, why don't you just look up all my massive rotator cuff tears and, uh, and then we can do something on that. So we pulled up all the lists and so he kind of went through everything and he came back to me and said, um, you know, you have more partial repairs than, than are listed in the literature. And I said, really? And, uh, and because, you know, Louis Biliani's philosophy on these was fix everything, you know, he and Rockwood were butt heads because Rockwood would be out there saying, look, just to breathe the patients, they'll do okay. And Louis was, no, you can fix these. And so I would fix them, everything I could fix. And then if I had a gap, I'd leave it. And I'd figure, well, you know, they'd probably be able to get enough balance, you know, healing here that they'll do okay. And then you sort of feel like, well, I, I think I'm doing what everybody else is doing. And the, the resident told me, he goes, no, nobody else is doing this but you. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And so, so we looked all those patients up, you know, and the results were, you know, they were decent, you know, they, and, and you start to realize that it's all about the pattern of the tear, you know, and, and all the stuff that Burkhardt talked about. So if you could get, you know, a subscap, a teres and a half of an infra, very often you'd have, he had a good shoulder. And so, um, you know, some patients just did remarkably well and other ones didn't. And so, you know, you wonder, you know, it's just like, you know, tr any other treatment, you say, well, if this is your baseline, or I think we had like, you know, half of the patients or maybe slightly under half had excellent results. And, you know, then, then, then you have to take that into account when you're looking at the balloon or you're looking at the different kind of tendon transfers and that sort of thing, because often it's just your basic underlying residual cup that's doing that and nothing else. So I think people have to be very, um, you know, wary of that and, and just understand that um, even these other uh, techniques, you know, the balloon is predicated on rehabilitating the shoulder to the point where you can reestablish that balance, you know, force couples. So it's the same idea. It's just a facilitation of that. And then if you look at the, 
you know, the other, the, the, the superior capsule reconstruction and a lot of those cases, people are doing a recon, you know, a partial repair and that. And so you, you wonder how much is coming from, from each of those uh, elements of the repair. And it does, it does give you pause. Uh, you know, certainly I've seen patients who you couldn't do a partial repair on, you know, the classic 50 year old with a, you know, large super infra tear and they just got teres and subscap left. And so there is a place for the tendon transfers. I never had good luck with um, the latissimus transfer. It was hit or miss, but I think this lower trap transfer is actually something that's going to be very helpful. Uh, the way we do our spear capsule reconstructions, I'm not sure is the best just because that tissue is just not that strong like what the Japanese use. And um, lately I've been using, trying to incorporate the biceps as much as I can into my repairs. Uh, and we'll see how that works out. But but it, but it is interesting, you know, how you kind of evolve with your technique and you sort of think, well, I'm doing it the same way I was taught. And then you realize you just gradually deviated based on your own concepts of what you think makes sense and what doesn't. Let's switch over a little bit to the ASCS and we would love to hear from you about your favorite memories of ASCS meetings over the year, perhaps your top memory. And of course, with this past year, with your involvement with the ASCS, your presidency, tell us a little bit about what the society has meant to you and and what you think your legacy is within the society. Well, that's a lot of questions there, Rachel. The, the, uh, my, my, so probably the memory I have the best of, uh, it was my first ASCS meeting, you know, when I, I came in in 2001 and it was, uh, back in the day, the 200 people in the entire organization and everybody in that room, they had a textbook with their name on it or published all the main literature. And I just felt like a kid in a candy shop, you know, it's just, just so thrilled to be there. And, uh, that meeting was in Pebble Beach, which was a beautiful place to have a meeting to start with. And just everything about that meeting and just sitting around the bonfires, talking to all these people and everybody's so friendly and nice. And, you know, sort of like you've gotten into the club and it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And it's the kind of thing that really motivates you to kind of keep moving forward with your career and, and do research and um, really, um, you know, teach and, and, and kind of keep pushing the ball forward. Um, you know, the, uh, ASES has evolved, you know, and I think it, it's a, it's a good evolution to a bigger organization, uh, for, um, for everyone's interested in shoulder. Cause we were losing <clears throat> very talented people to sports medicine and arthroscopy just cause they couldn't get into uh, shoulder and elbow. And so, you know, great minds were, were focusing on other areas. And so I think it was very wise that we did what we did. Um, you know, this, um, this past year has been a great year. Uh, I, you know, I think it's funny, you know, uh, Anna uh, Quintanella, who's our uh, executive administrator, said to me at one point, she goes, you know, I think we need a rule that uh, every fifth year we need a private practice guy to run the organization. <laughs> because in private practice, you know, you're used to paying attention to the finances and the organization and the committees and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the academic guys are more focused on the teaching and the, everything else. But, you know, you need both of those to make an organization run. Um, I think, you know, probably my biggest legacy is what I've been able to do with um, the traveling fellowships. <clears throat> so I came on uh, the presidential line like three years ago. And just as I came on, the Brazilians had requested to send traveling fellows to the United States. And ASES has said, I'm sorry, we can't accommodate them. And so that, that, you know, that happened just as I came on. And I said, that's not right. I mean, the Brazilians are some of the most important, you know, people internationally in the shoulder world. And we need to be able to accommodate them. So I said, do you guys mind if I take that on as my presidential project is to see if I can sort out what's going on with our fellowships? And they said, have at it. And they were happy to have me take that on. And so I must have called about 20 people, you know, around is the past president, the people, you know, in charge of the committee. And they were all pulling their hair out thinking this is such a mess and we've been trying to fix it. It can't, you know, can't be fixed. And I kind of finally sorted through everything. <clears throat> and of course, one of the people that had the most information was Evan Flato, 
who had been president several years before. And so between him and Jeff Abrams, I found out there was actually money in the foundation designated towards the traveling fellowships and that a commitment had been made, made by ASES to fund all of the CSEC ASES, you know, reciprocating traveling fellowships because now each country is sort of paying for the other country. Each group was. And so, um, and this whole thing had sort of evolved in a hodgepodge fashion where <clears throat> the Chinese had requested to come over and we said yes. The Japanese had requested to come over and we said yes in unilateral fashion. And then the Koreans had had something unofficial through Hawkins. And then when Hawkins retired, Hawkins asked um, the ASCS, would they assume you know, that traveling fellowship? And we said yes. And so, uh, so all these things kind of hodgepodge together. And, uh, and so I work with Ed McFarland, uh, who's, who runs that committee, is a great guy and uh, very devoted to it. And we sort of figured out, okay, A, we have money. Uh, and then we sort of started working through our budget. And then we, started, we figured out, you know what, not only do we have money, we have enough money where we could expand this program. And so we, we said, well, how should we expand it? So we wrote a letter to all the international uh, shoulder and elbow organizations around the world and said, we're thinking about, you know, up, uh, upgrading our, our program and expanding it. And how, what would you like to see? And by and large, we heard from most everybody to say, we would like you to send more American fellows to our country, you know? And so, and so we thought, okay, well, what makes sense? And, we thought an Asian fellowship would, would make a lot of sense. And, and, but we were trying to make sure that it wasn't just one of those countries. So we got, had to get Korea, Japan, and China to agree to do one together, <clears throat> which took a while. And then, but they all agreed to do that. And then, you know, we, we, we got it orchestrated. We got funding for it. And, uh, and we just sent our two first fellows there this year, you know, Stephanie Mu and Louis Shi went and they had a fantastic time. And I think it was a great, you know, um, it was a great uh, experience for both the, the Asian countries who sponsored them and then for, for us, you know, for and certainly for the two of them. They just had a fantastic time. So since that time, I have also gone back to the Latin Americans and there's a political minefield down there just because of so many different countries, a lot of competition and um, rivalries. And, and we have uh, uh, organized that. So there's going to be unilateral Latin American fellows coming next year. And then uh, at our meeting, we talked to the Australians. And, and again, they're, they're a group that has a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. They sort of feel like they have as much to teach as they have to learn, which is true. A lot of these countries do. Uh, but um, but they're eager to start doing it now, too. I mean, it took a lot of some little cajoling there. But so I think that I really think that the traveling fellowships are a transformative experience for the fellows that do them. It creates a bond between uh, mid-career academic surgeons that will lead to increasing collaboration, increasing exchange of ideas. And, uh, and, and, and increase the, the closeness between our different societies. So I just think it opens so many doors, you know, and I know Dr. Neer was always super keen on traveling on, on, on foreign fellows. So he typically had one American fellow and one uh, uh, international fellow. And so, cause he was very committed to international teaching. And so, so, and I, I believe that, I think it's very important for us to do because the exchange of ideas is so critical that, you know, no matter where you are, you know, the giants in your country will sort of dominate the thought. And so, uh, and, but when a giant from another country comes and says something very different that works, then you have to reevaluate your whole concept of how things work and, and you know, uh, what, what the best treatment is for certain problems. It really ex expands your, 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 your universe to do that. So I think that more than anything else, I mean, I've done some other stuff, like our finances were a mess just because we just separated from the academy and we had basically three siloed organizations, you know, the society, the, <coughs> the foundation and the, the journal. And so, you know, I had fixed finances in another large organization before, so I knew how to do that. So I got a financial team in and we've done that, but that's sort of just, you know, business things. Um, but it, it's been a fantastic year. I mean, we have so many, so many um, talented and um, eager uh, 
members like you guys, you know, that are doing things like this, that, that really uh, go above and beyond that. It's, it's really just a matter of getting every, everybody lined up in the right direction. Well, it's um, the fellowship thing in particular is a huge contribution. And I, I, speaking as someone who's tried to travel internationally to learn from other surgeons, it's been an incredibly eye-opening experience. And I think what you mentioned is accurate. I mean, it's incredibly valuable. There's one question we've asked to a lot of the science of shoulder and elbow surgery that have come onto our podcast. We want to ask you, and it's, if you could have dinner with any person in history, who would it be and where would you have dinner? Uh, like, is this like a shoulder surgeon or anybody? any person, any person? Wow. Hadn't really thought about that. Um, I think, uh, you know, you'd have to think of some of the greats, like either, you know, Galileo or Leonardo da Vinci, somebody like that, because their minds were so expansive. I mean, they just thought about so many different things at, at once. And I think that they were, uh, people like 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 we are in certain ways that are kind of moving forward and, and the path is uncertain and you're trying to um you know figure your way forward and make sense of the universe you know and we're make, trying to make sense of um you know the shoulder and and what, how we take care of patients and things like that and if the path is not always clear so it requires some imagination some creativity and um you know, I think somebody like that who uh, who has so much creativity and just how they think and how they approach the world, um, it would be very fascinating. Uh, where would I go? Uh, I think I'd, I'd eat at some nice Basque restaurant in northern Spain, you know, because <laughs> that's my heritage. My, my grandfather was a chef in uh, a, a Basque restaurant, so I enjoy that food. I wonder what Galileo would order for dinner at a Basque restaurant. Sardines, I think. <laughs> <laughs> sardines. Sardines. I'm just picturing you and Galileo sitting down to dinner, a dinner of sardines in northern Spain. Yeah. It could, it could happen. <laughs> it sounds great. You should do it. Yeah. I wish it could happen. Yeah. Well, we want to thank you so much for, for coming on and spending, I mean, close to an hour with us. And I, I know both Pete and I could chat with you for forever. And, and I'm sure our listeners would enjoy, um, you know, more time with you, but we want to be respectful of you and your evening. So we really want to thank you for coming on to this podcast and spending so much time with us. Well, it's my pleasure. It's really been great. And I really appreciate all that you guys do for uh, American Shoulder and Elbow and uh you know this whole podcast and you know i i i i think you know um future leaders self-identify you know and you guys certainly shown a lot of leadership in doing this and taking on this project and i think it's a it's another benefit for our members and it's really interesting to hear all the different stories so thank you for including me well, thank you. And thanks for contributing to those stories. Again, this was uh, up there with one of the top podcasts, I think, that we've done in the history of the ASCS podcast. So thank you so much. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.